Thank you for listening to the Ablaze Church Sermon Podcast. Our purpose at Ablaze is to love God, love others, follow Jesus, and tell others. If you are looking for a church home in the Tulsa area, we'd love to have you join us for worship on Saturdays at 6.30 p.m. or Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at ablazechurch.org. Did you hear about the little boy who was talking to his dad? And he says, Dad, what does it mean to be a real man? And the father thought about that for a moment, and he said, Well, son, a real man is somebody who's courageous. A real man is someone who stands on what is right. A real man is somebody who, with authority, makes decisions and does not back down from them. Oh, said the little boy. He said, well, then I hope to be a real man like mom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that same type of question could be asked about the church. Is there hope for the church? Especially as we take a close look at the Christian church in our world today. A world that acts as if the Christian church is not even real. A world where the Bible, God, prayer is removed from public schools and from society, it seems like. A world where church attendance, giving, from because of many reasons, like COVID or whatever, doesn't seem to be going up, but going down. Is there hope for the church? Well, the answer is yes, especially if the hope, uh, the church, excuse me, is courageous. There's hope for the church if the Church stands on what is right. There's hope for the church if we as the church with authority make decisions and do not back down. Is not the church a woman? The bride of Christ? But the real reason that I'm here today to speak to you about the hope for the church The ultimate reason is because of the words of Jesus Christ this morning. He makes it perfectly clear why we have hope when it comes to the church. Let's take a closer look at the gospel reading this morning. Now, I know many of you have probably heard these words before. They're very special. But I want to make it clear to you the location where Jesus speaks these words, is as important, you might say, as the words. And we don't necessarily always understand that. That's why many people say, if you ever get to the Holy Land, 
you understand it's considered the fifth gospel because it opens up the scriptures to understand the landscape, the geography, and why Jesus chose this location to speak these words. Let's take a look at the location. Now, when Jesus came into the district, this is verse 13 of chapter 16, the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples. Now, if you were here last night for my message, you probably have a better understanding. But this location is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It is the headwaters of all the water that flows through the Holy Land. Meaning this is the fountain that gives living water to all the people in the Holy Land. And it's a magical place in this sense. There's this huge mountain north of the Sea of Galilee. And out of this mountain, miraculously, divinely, flows a spring. A massive spring. Comes right out of a solid rock. And the largest waterfalls in all of the Holy Land flows from this mountain down this beautiful water, waterfalls. It feeds the Sea of Galilee. That's where the Sea of Galilee gets its water. And from the Sea of Galilee, it flows through the Jordan River and it dumps into the Dead Sea and there it stops. Well, this massive mountain with this miracle springs is also the center, the heartbeat of paganism. Below this mountain, this cliff, is all pagan temples. Some estimate 14 pagan temples to foreign gods. Why? Because it's magical. This water flows from a rock. How can that be? And it feeds all of the Holy Land. So Jesus leaves the Sea of Galilee, follows the water north, and comes to this massive rock. But he's surrounded by pagan temples. Now, it's Caesarea Philippi, because when Herod the Great, who was alive when Jesus was born, who redid the temple, died, he split the Holy Land up into three sections. His son Philippi got the northern part, and that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi. And before this huge rock, imagine behind me, is a massive rock. It's a mountain, and the water is gushing by me, going to the Holy Land. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says these words. Who do the people say? Now, he doesn't say, who do the people say son of man is? He says, who do the people say the son of man is? See, there's a difference in the definite article that Jesus uses. Now, it is Ezekiel in the Old Testament, that prophet, he's called a son of man. 
That's the Bible's way of saying a man. Okay, if I, if I look at you and say, you are a son of man, Ross, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm saying you're human. You're a man. But I would never look at Ross and say, you are the son of man. No, that's reserved only for the Messiah, God Almighty. It's Daniel who says, the son of man is coming someday. So he's making a distinction immediately with his disciples. Who do the people say the son of man is? Okay. And then they come up with all these, you know, well, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others, Elijah, because of a promise, the last book of the Bible, last chapter, last verses, on the great day of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. Elijah will return. And those of you who know your Bible know that when Jesus was asked about it, he says, that's John the Baptist, the forerunner for me. But Elijah's dead. John the Baptist is dead. Jeremiah is dead. All the prophets are dead. Okay, and they go through the list. Or one of the prophets, he said to them personally, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Hmm, ever think about that? And then there's a response. Simon Peter replied. Now he's the one who, you know, just likes to speak up, always saying something. You are, notice how he responds. He adds the, or in the Greek language, the definite article. Makes all the difference. You are the Christ. That means he's Jewish He's been waiting for the Messiah to come. Christ is the Greek for Messiah in the Old Testament. The Savior. In other words, my Savior. The Christ. The Son of the living God. So Jesus is called the Son of Man. That's what he was going to be called in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He's both man and God Almighty. How can that be? Makes them unique, distinct, separate, set apart from any of the foreign pagan gods. Okay? In this location. And notice what happens. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjana, using his human name, the one he was born with, son of John. But remember, it is Jesus who changes the name of Peter. I'm going to say gives him a name that's divine from God, Peter. Okay, let's go. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-John, meaning you are a man. Remember that. You might, you might say Jesus is putting Peter in his place as a man, a man. But then he lifts them up. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter, this isn't because you're a great guy. You haven't done anything. Okay? This has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Wow. Is there hope for the church? Yeah, because what is revealed to the church is from the Father. It's not what we do. 
It's what God has done for us and for anybody who's a part of the church. 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, the Greek term here is Petrus. Okay? Pebble. <laughs> okay? Now imagine this. I don't know if this happened, but Jesus could have reached down and picked up a little stone, a little pebble, puts his palm and says, Peter, you think you're great? You're a pebble. No different than Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, or any of the prophets. They're just pebbles. He uses a word, pebble. Okay? Another word for it would be rock. Okay? And, on, and then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this mountain, he uses a different word. Now think about it. Behind Jesus is a rock, a mountain. He says, upon this mountain, and then he points to himself. This rock, this mountain, he says, I will build my church. He doesn't say, Peter, you're a pebble, and upon this pebble, I will build your church, Peter. No. You see, there's two interpretations of this event right here. Some of you know it. One interpretation is Jesus is telling Peter, I'm building the church on you. You're the man, Peter. You're the vicar of Christ. The primacy of the Pope is born. Really? If that's so, why didn't the rest of the disciples get it? You know who becomes the bishop of Jerusalem? Not Peter. James. Okay? Why didn't Paul get it? Paul confronts Peter and tells him, You're wrong, Peter, and doesn't take his authority, but God's authority over Peter's and walks away from him. Hmm. When you look at the context, would Jesus build the church on a man called the pebble? He should have called him the rock, the mountain cliff, if that was so. A couple verses later, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. If the hope of the church was built upon you and me, man, <laughs> there is no hope, folks. But the church is not built upon man. It's built upon the work of the Father and the work of the Son. Listen to how Jesus clarifies it for all of us. Verse 18, I will build my church, not Peter's church, my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why is there hope for the church? Because of the words of Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's his promise to all of us. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what changes in the world, the gospel never changes. We are courageous because of the word, of what the Father has done for us. We can stand on the promise of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if you ever go to a Christian funeral, you'll hear about that hope. Because usually the words of Jesus Christ are proclaimed. You see, the gates of hell is another way of saying death. 
where everybody has gone once they leave this world, where the spirits go. Death itself cannot knock down the door called Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. Death has no hold of Jesus because he rose from the dead. What can death say to the resurrection? Nothing. <laughs> it can't break down the resurrection. Death has no hold on Jesus, and death has no hold on us. So is there hope for the church? Absolutely, because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Listen to how he wraps this up. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It is Peter who does stand up at Pentecost and preaches not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and the birth of the church and the doors were opened, you might say, to Jews. Greeks, Gentiles, slaves, free, male, female, and it was wide open. That's the hope of the church. Is there hope for the church that you're a part of? Is there hope for your family members, your neighbors, people you know to come into the church? Oh, yeah. If we are courageous... Courageous means we're willing to stand up and we're willing to be proud that I am a Christian. Courageous means that's my Lord and that's my Savior and I'm proud of it. And I'll never be embarrassed of being a Christian in the world I live, the neighborhood I live, the place I work. Is there hope for the church if we stand on what's right? The word of God and all the promises in the word of God. Is there hope for the church? Absolutely. If with authority, we will make decisions that are right based upon the word of God, and will not recant, as Martin Luther says, here I stand <laughs> on the word of God. I can do no other and not back down, especially when it comes to creation. How did we get here? When it comes to the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, when it comes to salvation, that it's by grace through faith you are saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If salvation is based upon works, there is no hope for the church. That's why Jesus said, Peter, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. There's hope for the church when it's what God does, not what we do. There's hope for the church, <laughs> definitely. And we know that because of the promise of Jesus Christ. If you take anything with you today, know this, what I say today and the hope for the church is only based upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He tells us today, don't fret, 
Don't worry about it. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. No matter how dark or gloomy it might be, you know, at one time the church needed a reformation. Another time the church needed the great awakening and the second great awakening. There's always revival. There's always ups and downs in the history of the church, but we're a part of it and we have great hope (laughs) because wherever two or three are gathered, that's where I am, saith the Lord. Because of Jeremiah who said, listen, God says, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. There's hope for the church. The world may change. The songs we sing and the way we worship may change, but the word of God never changes. Okay. And because of that, the never changing God, who's the same as Tina spoke, same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that never changes. So there is hope for the church. And especially when we're courageous vessels who represent our God. There's hope for the church. Amen.